If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Catherine Nichols and this is Lit Century, a podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week our year is 1984 and I'm going to be talking about the video game Tetris with game designer Tracy Ray Bullock. They have a game out right now on itch.io called The Fight, and they're working on a new game called The Color of the Moon. They also have a podcast called Gift Horse with Mike McGinnis, who was on our Strangers on a Train episode. Uh, I assume that the game Tetris doesn't need a lot of summary for listeners. It's the one where different shaped blocks float down a screen, and you have to make them line up in rows, which disappear once they're complete. That's all there is to the game, but there's a lot more we wanted to say about it. Here's our conversation. Tracy, welcome to the podcast. Um, it was such a treat to be on your podcast on uh, Gift Horse before. Uh, I'm really happy that that you're here on Lit Century. Um, and I also really loved your idea of doing uh, Tetris as a topic. It is not a book. Obviously, it's not the first thing <laughs> that Lit Century has done something that is not a book. But it seemed like such a unique cultural object that in some ways is a lot like a lot of things that came before but is like once you know everything that comes after Tetris it's a lot more like things that come later than it is like anything that comes before yeah I think you're right I think it it played a big role in ushering video games into sort of the public consciousness um, as something that uh, a lot of people would play and share an experience with. Not that there weren't any games like that. Like this is after Pong, this is after, uh, you know, Frogger and things like that. But, um, but I think it definitely uh, made more people aware of games as a shared experience that, that they could, uh, engage with others and yeah in a way it it seems more more alone also because it's, it's not something you play in an arcade I mean you could technically play Tetris in an arcade but I think that the the classic idea of what you're doing when you're playing Tetris is you're sitting in front of your computer alone sort of like the bathed in blue light <laughs> like just losing hours of time right? Yes. And I, I definitely know that there's that idea that you have like a, you know, pocket full of quarters and you just sort of eat through them playing Pac-Man or whatever. 
But mm-hmm. even so, that's not quite the same as just how much Tetris has no beginning and no end. And it can just kind of eat your life at any amount of time you could spend playing Tetris. And it's always sort of the same experience. And it is always incredibly satisfying. Yeah, it's unique in that way. I think you're right. Um, uh, it's I. I don't know this for a fact. I'm not like super well-versed in games journalism, but I think that there is definitely a tendency right around the emergence of Pac-Man to start talking about video games as these incredibly addictive things that sort of uh, hijack your brain without you knowing it. And I think Tetris was one of the first to be referred to in that way as almost sort of this virus that once you saw someone playing Tetris, you too would succumb to the Tetris impulse. And um, pretty much like the documentaries we were both watching about the, it, it's amazing how much it seemed like a virus, how it was just passed from like computer to computer in the laboratories around the developer that first developed it. And it just took over everyone's, like that at first the psychologist tried to um, get people to stop. Like he demanded that everyone in his laboratory erase it from their computers. <laughs> and it came back in, like they couldn't stop people from playing Tetris. And then he was like, all right, fine. We'll study addiction. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that like when, like before the internet became what it is, the idea of being the kind of person who looks things up in the dictionary, being the kind of person who reads the encyclopedia was like an identity or a personality. And I think there was a moment in early internet where it was like being the kind of person who looks things up in Wikipedia still seemed kind of like an identity. But really that way that you can just sit in front of um, Tetris or the internet Wikipedia or, you know, TV tropes or whatever, fan fiction archive, like anything, (laughs) so many ways on the internet that you can just lose six hours of your life without even being aware of the time passing. Um, And you're often, I, I, you know, stop me if this is going too far, but it feels like you're often telling yourself a story about what you're accomplishing by doing that. Um, yeah. You know, that you're, you're learning something, you're achieving something by going down this rabbit hole or uh, by playing uh, too many rounds of Tetris. There's a, at least an all the kids in that quiverful family with the block. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's this illusion that you're that you're learning something um which i mean i think you are in a way I, I think that tetris is a is a good example of a game that teaches you how to play it and doesn't have to do a lot of um tutorializing to get you there that your your brain does sort of figure out good strategies as you play more and more of it. And that itself is a pretty addictive feeling um, that you're figuring something out and you're doing it on your own. Yeah. um, One of the things from the past that it seems kind of like is chess in that way, that the way that people talk about 
chess like it's something bigger than just a game it's not like dominoes or checker checkers or something like that it's like um it's something people would do science about and i think that there's a big desire to do science about tetris also like you know the studies about how it helps you know post-traumatic stress syndrome and it um like the tetris effect where your brain keeps on giving you ways that these blocks could interlock even after you've stopped playing because your brain is like i know what you want <laughs> you want more <laughs> you want to continue stacking uh have you ever experienced that yeah oh yeah cool I mean, it, well, it freaked me out the first time i experienced it like i had a tetris dream and i was very into tetris um I think it was my final year of grad school or maybe the first year I was out. Um, I was playing a lot of Tetris before bed and I eventually had to like almost set a timer on myself to say, you cannot play more than this amount of Tetris or you will not be able to sleep because you will dream of Tetris. <laughs> and it was a real problem for a while. <laughs> um yeah, I was thinking about things that it's like. Like I um I guess it was the year after I graduated from college, I did a lot of crossword puzzles. And I was like crossword puzzles feel like writing, but they're actually not writing, but they feel like they are because you're kind of solving language problems and mm -hmm. you're like doing a very moderate amount of research and you know, that kind of thing. And um it feels like you're doing something that you're not actually doing and um in one of those documentaries there was actually a um i think it was hank rogers the the one who like kind of brought it out of he brought it out of hungary or out of russia which step was was hank rogers uh yeah, i mean he was pretty involved uh in both uh he he kind of got it out of hungary but he also was the one to ultimately kind of take the prize away yeah um, from from Russia to get their uh, the full rights to distribute it on, on on handheld consoles. Yeah, yeah, okay. That I remember that. I there were so many details of the whole like licensing story. And you said you took notes. I took notes for a while. Then I was like, I don't know, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, and I definitely didn't catch all the various transitions. But uh, yeah, I found it kind of fascinating the way it changed hands without. It changed hands so many times. And some of the times that it changed hands seemed like, like they were doing shady business because they thought that the whole Cold War Iron Curtain thing allowed them to do stuff that they would not consider ethical if they were talking about other Americans. Yes. You know. No, I think absolutely so. I, I think, you know, there was a lot of sort of go global commerce game playing there and people the different people who were so involved in trying to get the rights to Tetris, I think did think they could play pretty fast and loose or, or rely on different strategies, right? Like there were some who had good connections with the Kremlin and they could maybe rely on that um, or thought they could. And there were some who were great salesmen and sort of a traditional, well, not a, uh, in like a post-World War II sort of way of yeah, yeah. Uh, high consumerism and, and getting people to imagine this world of possibility 
um, you know, like the, the science of marketing was what they were good at and they thought that would conquer all. Um, yeah, it's just interesting how many different strategies there were. One of the things in there is the, the, um, the guy who actually invents it, um, Sorry, I'm going to just look up his name to make sure I'm getting it right. Um, yes. I was going to ask you how to pronounce it. Oh, Alexei Pajitnov. Um, so he invented it based on his being bored at his programming job um, and remembering how it's really easy to take um, pentominoes, you know, like tile puzzle out of the box, really hard to put them back in. And so he did like this really simple game that was just putting the pentominoes into a box in the, but then once you do it, you're done. And so he had this idea of having them falling. So you have to sort of continually keep putting them in and then deleting the, the, um, the rows. I mean, what everyone knows, you know, except that they had five pieces each and then he, he reduced it down to four pieces each. Right. Uh, I'm not saying this like you don't know it, Tracy. <laughs> just, no, no, no. I just those is a game design decision and it's it's super important to the effect. So yeah, no, I I felt like that description of what his thinking was in each of those, like as he developed each of those ideas, I thought that was really interesting. I thought that was it made sense that this would um like each step seemed like logically quite close to what came before, but the result is something that really isn't logically close to anything that we had before, you know? Um, yeah. I think a lot of them created that impetus to keep, to keep playing and keep playing and keep playing. Right. Like you said, you're with the original form of the game, you fill up a box with these, with a set number of pieces. And if you figure it out, you're done. And if you don't figure it out, then you're frustrated <laughs> falling and the lines disappear. Then you have to keep making those decisions over and over again. Yeah. The, um, the fact that the lines disappear, so you never make progress really. Um, it, he uh, names it uh, based on the Greek word tetra and the um, tennis, the word tennis. So it's, that's where tetris comes from. And I was thinking that um, both the pentominoes that the tetrominoes are based on, um, like there's a there's an implicit end to the activity, and then in tennis you just get physically tired. Right. And your, thinking, the limits are your limits. <laughs> yeah, that there's pretty much no activity that I can think of that predates Tetris that's that open-ended right right you did yeah like i think in theory most of the games at that time would just or puzzle type games um would just keep feeding you levels and they would escalate one small piece of the um of of the gameplay right like they your ships get faster uh, there yeah. are more bullets, there are more enemies, um, you have less time, you know, they just keep tweaking the parameters. And uh, I think if I remember right, later versions of Tetris, 
I don't know that it was part of the original to escalate the speed with which the pieces fell. That's a, that's a common modification now, but like you said, it's just sort of like, when, when do you get tired of it? (laughs) Exactly. Like that, that's that feeling of bottomlessness. I think we have a lot of things now. Candy crush never gets more difficult. It's always just basically the same thing. You're pretty much going to have the same experience. Yeah, so one of the things that Hank Rogers said, and this seemed extremely 20th century to me, um, he said that Tetris is a better game than like Space Invaders or whatever more arcade style games uh, that had existed before because everyone thought that Americans just wanted um, violence, they wanted to be able to shoot things, and that was made what made a, a game appealing. But um, Tetris is about building, and um, that's sort of more archetypal human like satisfaction. I was thinking archetypes, my old enemy. Uh, was like <laughs> extremely 20th century move of saying something is serious because it was um, an archetype. Ah, uh, uh, yes. <laughs> um, we love to build. <laughs> yeah, that's like, well, sort of. But you could also say it's very much unlike building because every time you build something, it gets zapped away. Right. It's a staving off of chaos as much as it is. Uh, you know, like I, I do tend to think of it. I, I don't know that I would say it's archetypal, but I I do think that there is a at least a pretty typical like a general brain urge to order things. Um, yeah. I mean, you could say that there's a general brain urge to toward order, but there's also a general brain urge toward messing stuff up. Yeah. And that, yeah. You know, like you could say that either space invaders or Tetris is satisfying because in one of them you create order and another you zap order out of, you know, you like zap the little aliens till they stop having a formation, whatever. Um, Yeah, actually, um, I I think that same quote, I, I had the thought because they, that quote sort of launched into this discussion of Tetris as this negative impulse, like, you're trying to stave off destruction, you're trying to avoid the blocks uh, climbing up to the top. And you're, meanwhile, like cursing your mistakes, (laughs) because your mistakes that caused this problem are left as holes and gaps that you, you know, didn't feel correctly. So you have to see your mistakes and it's true. They stay visible. Yeah. And like that one, like if there's like one of the tall guys, yeah, long voice. (laughs) (laughs) There is some um, abysmal stock footage that they use. Like, I'm like, this is not a person playing Tetris. This is a person who left Tetris on for 20 minutes while they recorded, um, uh, footage um no player would do this no player would put a long boy there <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, probably, I know they have other names um <laughs> but i do think that there's yeah they they really emphasize that it's a game that that succeeds because it makes you unsatisfied but i think that it it keeps you in this constant um, balance almost between the two states, because as much as you might want to try to order things correctly, the only way you can get a chance to fix your mistakes is if you clear something, if you, if you clear enough to sort of 
re reopen your mistakes. Yeah. Um, and there's a real impulse to do that. And, and so, yeah, I kind of balked against it being called a negative impulse, I think. Yeah. I think that it just, in some ways, it was so new that anything could be like that, even in a world that already had things like pinball and space invaders and other arcade games. Um, I, I just think they don't even, they didn't even know what they were looking at. They didn't have any framework to really describe it. And that trance like kind of meditative state that you fall into playing Tetris such that you would actually fully dream about it. Um, I, I don't know that there was ever an easy way to like achieve that before, you know, you think about all of the things that hypnotists or religious people do to achieve various states of kind of calm alertness or attention that is also disconnected. And then yeah. Tetris is just like, here, it's easy. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it immediately grabs your focus. And um, yeah, certainly I found it more, more powerful as a way to grab my own focus as opposed to meditation or any other interventions. So, so yeah, it's a mysterious power. It is. And then I think that the, those studies saying that it helps PTSD and um, that all of the other equivalent things that would help PTSD where you, basically the idea is that you think about the traumatic memory, but you aren't as connected to the emotion of it because you're also playing Tetris, which can pull away enough of your focus and your sensory apparatus that you aren't kind of reliving it and that that can separate your emotions from something that is obviously very emotionally powerful uh, and terrifying, you know, sorry, we were just talking about Tracy getting scared while, <laughs> while we're recording the podcast. So provide <laughs> a few thrills and chills for her. No, I'm safe. I'm safe. <laughs> You're safe because you have your game. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, sorry. I just think that all the other things where they're like, well, there's, you know, rapid eye movement. It's similar to like rapid eye movement where you're distracted by the mo motion of your eyes. And I'm thinking you're supposed to be distracted by the motion of your eyes. I don't know. <laughs> it's a lot less distracting. That seems like it's a, a much bigger force of will to force yourself to be distracted by the motion of your eyes than a game of Tetris. It's not that I think that people actually are in a religious state when they are playing Tetris, but, or, you know, any of the many similar games that there are now, it's more like, what does it mean to be able to have that state become easy and fun and even a vice rather than a virtue that is sort of hard one? You right, know? right. Yeah. And there's certainly an impetus because these are video games to 
to say that this is sort of a, a lesser way of reaching that state or an under, you know, this is not oh. how that can be achieved. Um, you're going to go on, you're going to go on the record with the video games are lesser as a video game designer. It's bold. No, no, that's what I'm saying. Like there's that temptation there that I, you know, I think that um, I'm trying to think of a, of a similar sort of phenomenon. Um I don't know. This isn't a very good one, but, you know, maybe something like saying, uh, you know, comics are not a good way of getting narrative content or something. Oh, you know? totally. I think that's a great analogy because I think that there's that feeling that they're new and they're cheap and therefore they must be bad. And that yeah. some of them are bad, but some of everything is bad. And I feel like I'm about to skydive from <laughs> 30,000 feet here, but the way you're talking about Tetris sort of makes me think of the original novels and sort of how they were perceived, just sort of the, the way that the novel was uh, originally this uh, lower class way to consume, or maybe not lower class, but lower uh, intensity way to, um, to gain knowledge or to exercise your brain um, and to read, you know, like this well, wasn't was so pleasurable. <laughs> like it was seen as like so pleasurable. There had to be something wrong with it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's the, the feeling that I, that I think I, um, I think carried really, across those two. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a really good analogy. Um, I think that one thing that Tetris does that has to that, that's that has to do with how it was invented by this one guy who was sort of alone at work wanting something that would um, become interesting that I think something like Candy Crush and other modern Tetris type spin-offs have changed is if you're playing Candy Crush, you can put it down at any time for any amount of time. Mm-hmm. With Tetris, you really can't stop playing Tetris. Like if someone interrupts you, while you're playing, you have to fully quit the game. Or, you know, maybe you could pause the game, but it's kind of not, like, even if there's a pause function, it's not the same as the kind of game where you can just stop at any point for any amount of time. And I think Mm -hmm. that the cliche now is that people who play casual games like Candy Crush on there, it's like a mom thing to do. Yes, yes. Um, Absolutely. Mobile games in particular are pretty looked down on. Yeah, in the, even in the larger gaming community, they're like this subset of games or the sub tier. Yeah, so that's why I found it so interesting that it was, it's like, first of all, everyone involved in the propagation of Tetris around the world is a man and they're all just like, oh my goodness, we have to find a way to harness this possibly sinister Russian plot to make sure we never get work done again. <laughs> and, um, but at the same time, like all the marketing has to do with it's like spooky Russianness. Yes. Um, yes. Um, that was fascinating to me because I didn't realize that um, the original marketing did like that would have been, if you had just asked me how they would market it, I would have thought they wanted to stay, would want to stay as far away from Russian iconography as possible. And instead it was this moment of transition, I think of like, Oh no, Russia is, is uh, mysterious and forbidden. And, you know, we want to consume it now. Since I um, 
spend a lot of time researching the Belarus, the idea that uh, Russia is both mysterious and forbidden and possibly sort of magical. Definitely. Right. It predates the Cold War, but obviously the Cold War, they're very into it. Um, and it is interesting that the um, the packaging in the English version of Tetris was uh, like it emphasized the Russian element a lot less and it also sold less well than the U.S. version. But um, yeah, I just think that the the place in society for casual games, like the, the way that they're looked down on now has to do with the fact that it's moms that play them and that moms need to um, be interrupted all the time and can't really achieve a flow state like Tetris. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's one reason that the Tetris, I really don't think it is played that much anymore. Right. No, you, and you ask, you're right. You ask yourself who had, or maybe still has four hours to just lose to Tetris and yeah. it's and not if, somebody with, you know, a family. <laughs> it's not. It, it's also like, if you do have that time, is Tetris the thing you would spend it on? Right. And it's like, well, no, because you'd probably, I don't know, listen to like four episodes of a podcast or mm-hmm. um, like read Wikipedia or something like that. I mean, there's so many other things that have that same quality now. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're right. And I think they present a little more illusion of, um, I don't know, agency, maybe, um, you know, that Tetris feels like this thing that you can't stop yourself from doing, but, you know, watching a bunch of YouTubes about, um, about a particular era of music, for or or watching a bunch of YouTubes about a guy playing a synthesizer, which I have sometimes done. <laughs> um, well, on the public record, we're going to admit to the guy with synthesizer YouTube. Huh? Yes, uh, I, uh, you know, and I and I tell myself I'm learning something, right? Like like yeah. oh, I'm going to really absorb this, and this is going to you know help me in my own pursuits of making music. And but I I don't because I don't study it. I I don't. I don't take notes. I don't, uh, you know, practice what I've learned. I just consume it. Um, And, and ultimately that's just, that's just pleasure too. It just doesn't, it, it has a bit more veneer of a veneer, I think of learning. Yeah. And it's interesting because you could say all the same things about reading a book about synthesizers, but I don't think anybody I don't think people's relationship to books has ever been, you know, what a relationship to the internet could be in terms of ability to just waste time on the internet. Mm -hmm. People can go into a library and spend the day pleasurably, but I also don't think that it's the same kind of like mental squalor available to you. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Um, But Like at this point, even if you were to just watch TV and eat snacks all day, that would seem like an amazing degree of long-term focus. Mm -hmm. 
like if you just watched Fresh Prince of Bel Air, which I think, <laughs> I think people probably did before there was much internet, you know? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I, you know, I was thinking about, you know, more of a binging sort of. But do people just binge watch TV or do they binge watch TV while they're also on Twitter? Exactly. Through Instagram. Right. Yeah. Rather than making a, um, yeah, making a habit of sitting down in front of the TV and I'm going to watch what comes on. Um, the unpredictability of that as much as, as anything, I think, creates the illusion that you're engaged. Um, yeah, but I wonder, because I think that that watching a lot of TV in a dissolute way was something that people thought of as like mental squalor, you know, was did like hold that part of in society where it was like, what did you do this weekend? Oh, I just closed the curtains and watched TV would be similar to like, if you just spent all day on the internet. So it's Mm -hmm. not maybe that, that there wasn't anything. I'm sure people lost a lot of time playing pool or billiards. That's probably true. It's true. You don't, feel like you don't hear that referred to that somebody threw their life away on billiards not anymore yeah i was gonna say maybe not anymore i think gambling if there's gambling involved for money i think that people can probably just keep on going for a lot longer than than they would have if it was something without money on the line Mm -hmm. because there's that feeling of like Making progress, sort of, even though you know you're not. Yes. Yeah, you're sort of making a bet with yourself about how long you'll keep keep doing the activity. Um, which, again, feels a little like engagement, I would have to imagine, from the people who, who would justify it as, you know, no, no, I, I actually am doing something very productive here. I am losing money. <laughs> Well, but it's also social and you probably mm-hmm. do it when you're drunk too, which is, is like Tetris is neither social nor does it involve like getting drunk. Nobody's like, I had a couple of beers and finally had the quality time with Tetris that I had been looking forward to all week. <laughs> I set aside four hours, <laughs> do a fixed amount of Tetris. <laughs> Exactly. It's like, it's a game that could only exist when people have computers and they have boring desk jobs of the Dilbert variety mm-hmm. and they have a certain amount of privacy and lack of interruption. It's like, I think that's, sorry. Oh, just, it's like those exact social conditions and no others. Yeah. Cause at first I was thinking, I I wonder how much, I think of Tetris as a solo game because all my experiences with it have been social to some extent. Um, there's been a bit of a competitive element to it. Like maybe I would play it with, uh, with my husband or uh, with a, a couple of friends or um, very interesting thing. If you ever want to um, truly see what it might look like to conquer Tetris. If Tetris could be conquered, uh, watch somebody speed run it. Oh, it's, wow. 
Yeah, it just it feels like they're defeating Tetris. <laughs> it should be impossible. I don't know if that would even be satisfying. Like poor Tetris. <laughs> yeah, I know. It feel it does. It feels kind of it feels kind of sad. Um I mean, it's kind of chess is in a similar state, right? Like like the people who are at the very top of the game of chess are so they know the ins and outs of it so well and they can predict the outcome so well that all that's left is the scant possibility that they'll mess up yeah and that's the same with tetris is just like well if somebody just kind of has a bad day then yeah then tetris is not destroyed well i read that on uh, the wikipedia page that um that in theory you could play it forever but unless you get a series of the S like Z shape pieces um, that can't be sort of put together correctly, that if you've got a whole bunch of those in a row, um, which would mathematically happen at some point, if they're truly random, then it, it could be unwinnable at some point impossible to clear the, uh, the layers. And so they programmed it to make sure that, that that wouldn't happen. So that, the newer versions are actually theoretically infinitely playable. So like yeah. you said, it would only come down to human error. It's the only way. And as ordinary mortals, we can capture that thrill by playing tic-tac-toe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the worst game in history. Um, um, I am going to tell tic-tac-toe that you said that at the next game designer conference. It's actually, I think it's widely acknowledged. It's one of the first uh, examples of, um, in a lot of game design textbooks, they'll sort of uh, pose to you, okay, your first assignment, fix tic-tac-toe. Oh, wow. Um, Because it's just missing. There's a lot you could do to improve it just by tweaking very small elements, like the number of um, squares or the number of players or. uh, So if you were to tweak the number of squares, do you still have it be three in a row? Like if it were four by four. I don't think you would. I think you would, you know, like uh, I, I should, I should know this a little bit more, but the, this kind of, to me falls a little bit more in the realm of like tabletop board game design. Um, but like certain shapes and numbers of shapes that uh, that create um, effective play. Like that's why a lot of games involve hexagons and hexagon-shaped uh, playing mats. Is because, yeah, the like the six sides create a satisfying array of possibilities where cubes do not always (laughs) yeah no that makes sense that makes a lot of sense um so yeah there's there's some theory around that um yeah maybe you would make kind of a a diamond of uh of tic-tac of the tic-tac-toe board um there are a lot of things you could do uh but cool wow i i'm glad you told me that i didn't know that (laughs) um so do you want to talk about where game design is now in things like do you know stuff about where uh, i'll erase this by the way if you don't have something to say but um uh like what what tetris style games are like now 
No, this is a really good question. Uh, I will say a couple things in relationship to this. One, um, Alexei Puchinov, um, mm-hmm. the the creator of Tetris, has not really had any more slam dunk puzzle games. I think that um, he has created a few more, but they they have not taken off in the same way. And I think that there was maybe kind of a limit to the um, deceptive simplicity of his his style of game, the style of game that really kept him um, that kept him going with with developing Tetris. Because there, there's this great line where he says there was a moment where he felt the game breathe. Yeah. You, you know, and I, I like to think that's sort of where where he figured out how to um, twist the concept of the the tabletop game into something that was interactive, that that did start to feel more interactive and something that the player could could control and feel a lot of agency in. Um, and I'm not sure he. I'm not sure the player stayed with him on that. I think, like you said, everyone was exposed to Tetris. Uh, Everybody loved Tetris. And then everybody kind of got tired of Tetris. Um, And or like uh, the part of our lives where it made sense to play changed. Yes. Like, I don't, I don't know that people are tired of Tetris exactly. It's just no, because like you can still go back to it, and you go back to it, it's still really fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think there is a reason Tetris did so well on a handheld console that um, it was something that that was a very good way to while away time um, in a way that other games had had not been, um, and it, it was it really fit the portable form factor. Um, but yeah, I think puzzle games now tend to have a lot more, a lot more options in terms of, um, things the player can do has been kind of my experience. So it's, there's not the, the possibility space for just like placing blocks in a, (laughs) in a container and being able to rotate them and move them left and right, like that possibility space has been really thoroughly explored, I think. Yeah. So now a lot of the puzzle games are playing more with like, okay, what if you have like items that can blow up certain parts of the puzzle and and that sort of resets your progress in a certain way? What if you have items that um, glue pieces of the puzzle together? Yeah. Uh, and they sort of play with instability in that way um, and unpredictability. Yeah. And you can see why it's both interesting, but it also makes them more like arcade games where it's like, well, what if you have this different kind of gun on your ship? And what exactly. Kind of- yes. Yes. It feels very much like, you know, it kind of becomes almost more of a collection at that point. Yeah like a shiny yeah. object uh you know my special items yes um that's interesting and it it also means you, there's more stuff you have to learn there's more buy-in yes 
You can't just pick it up and immediately know exactly how everything works. And that makes it work very well with sort of the mobile games format too. If you can easily have additional downloadable content where you can easily introduce a new item or a new mechanic, then in-app purchases. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. No, it's a, it's almost a detriment to design a game like Tetris that is sort of self-contained that cannot be augmented meaningfully. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, presumably someone somewhere cares if you can like get different skins for your Tetris blocks, but I don't think, (laughs) I think that might be a rare person. All right, that's our episode on Tetris. Thank you to Tracy Ray Bowling and to Adam Bear for our music, and to everyone at Literary Hub for hosting us. Thank you also to everyone who has rated and reviewed us on Apple Podcasts. We also love hearing from you through Twitter at LitCenturyPod or uh, on Gmail at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and goodbye till next week. <laughs>